Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Freakin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs, reviving my old Sachs and the Cinema segment on Chicago radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence, Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview, British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We begin our series with John Carpenter. More than 40 years after the release of Halloween, he is still best known for that uber-slasher film, which changed the way thrillers were made and marketed and launched a franchise that is still going strong. But Carpenter turned out a stream of terrific personal projects that flew in the face of Hollywood norms. Among them, the cult alien classic, They Live, his adaptation of Stephen King's Christine, and his kung fu comedy, Big Trouble in Little China which he came to Chicago to promote in 1986. As strong as those films are, Carpenter had become unhappy with the compromises he found himself making as a Hollywood filmmaker. In our chat, he talks about how for him, Big Trouble in Little China was a return to making John Carpenter movies. Big Trouble, starring Kurt Russell as a trucker confronting ancient ghosts in San Francisco's Chinatown, also represented a shift for Carpenter from the darker themes that mainstream moviegoers had resisted. He was called a pornographer of violence and a god-hater for his bleak, paranoid thriller, The Thing. In our talk, He pays tribute to the Pantheon director Howard Hawks and Night of the Living Dead creator George Romero. You'll hear references to Starman, in which Jeff Bridges plays an E.T. doing his best to act human, and W.D. Rick Richter, the screenwriter of Big Trouble. I begin by asking Carpenter about the old saw immortalized in Robert Altman's The Player, about filmmakers needing to describe a project in two sentences or less when pitching it to moguls. 
but it is the experience of the film that's more important than what the film is about. The film, the film is dead simple. It's about, it's like the legend of Dracula. I mean, you go to see a Dracula movie, you don't have to ex explain to the, when you come out, oh, I know what that's about. It's about a vampire. Well, this is about ghosts in Chinatown. Ghosts and demons. And it's, it's about Kung Fu and martial arts. It's about things that you experience rather than this is about a blah, 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 blah. It, it plays on a lot of audience expectations. What you expect to see in one of these kind of movies. And it takes it and kind of yeah. fools around with it. Which is what I think is so unique about Richter's writing and the way the film came out. It's what we've all come to expect from Hollywood films. And let's just, let's just twist it on you a little bit. Yeah. Well, it really is that it has that same kind of roller coaster uh, effect as uh, Temple of Doom, which I didn't like nearly as much, but it's the same kind of kind of kinetic, you know, once it gets going and it gets going and it, it just gathers speed and that kind of thing. And uh, was that, I mean, I, I, I was reading the notes about how quickly it was shot relatively, and uh, I mean, was that a challenge to just keep the pace? without, you know, kind of getting sloppy or whatever. Well, it's actually easier than you might think. You just have to, you have to, have to say to everybody, faster. Yeah. Faster, faster, faster. I, I, I watched the Temple of Doom before we made this film because it was fast-paced. But it seemed inflicted on the audience rather than integral. It seemed like they were trying to make it so fast. The cutting style was, was constantly pushing a scene that not necessarily want to be pushed. So, I think my job then was, in order to make it the, the speed integral, okay, and not from the outside, not manipulated, but as a part of the story, you had to come from the scenes and say, okay, how fast can we make the scenes, not how fast can I cut the film? I mean, certainly that's a consideration. Yeah, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But if, yeah. if, if you're setting up a scene as a director, okay, you're going to walk in the door, I'm going to stage a scene, you walk in the door and sit down and drink some coffee and talk to me. Now, rather than waiting until I get in the editing room to make that quick, I'll direct you to come in the door at a dead run and get over here and sit down. See that? So it comes out of the scenes themselves. Yeah. It comes out of the attitudes. You know, get right on top of the lines. Don't don't think about what you're saying. It, it it's trying to make the the speed overtake the content and even and even propel the content of the of the film. Well, is that? I mean, are you defining in a way one of the real uh, keys to uh, a screwball-type comedy. Um. Yes, and one of the things I did, in addition, was watch some Hawks films. Again, yeah. I, I mean, I've seen them hundreds of times, but I, once again, I watched the... Uh, bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday. Now, His Girl Friday is one of the fastest movies I've ever seen. They just lickety-split. Yeah. They clocked that, I think, once at 250 words a minute. And that's a... But that's a dialogue picture so it's the dialogue that gives you the sense of speed not the camera angles except for a couple of scenes but as I watched it I realized you know this is the this is the kind of this is the kind of thing we need to do and Rick Rick and I worked on the script a little bit and we we talked about Howard Hawks and the kind of let's get a little of him in here you know if Hawks was making this in the 1930s how would he approach this thing with greater reverence you know I mean he and, and with with great uh, absurdity I, I, he didn't make fun of the characters. He, he believes in the characters, always Hawks. And I think we have to believe in all the characters, but boy, let's get them in action. Let's get them moving. Well, I, 
I mean, that's that's where so many films go wrong is when the camp aspect or the when yeah. they start saying, "Hey, look, we're kidding," and the characters are winking at you. But okay. in this case, I mean, and, and just beyond the kind of comic underpinnings, this whole Chinese tradition that you're getting at, I mean, it's, I mean, at the same time that you're screwballing, you're the, the, there's a real kind of, I don't know, if not reverence, then deep respect for this other tradition that we're not really too much aware of. Exactly. And I, I, to me, the success of this film depended entirely on capturing the spirit of basically the Chinese cinema because it is such a wondrous place that we don't know about. And I, I had um, several of my Chinese-American friends get me videotapes of movies that we would not be able to see in this country. Uh-huh. Mainly because there's just no way the audience can get into the, what's happening on the screen. The culture is so different. And I approached it by watching a lot of Chinese films and they, they are wonderful. They are unsophisticated, uncynical, sweet, and outrageously adventuresome. And let me give you an ex- give you a quick example because it's the, it's one of the funniest. I saw a lot of films to to uh, to spur me on, but there was a there was a kung fu movie, and I love dearly love kung fu movies. That's one of the reasons to make this film mm-hmm. because martial arts is so much fun. There was a kung fu movie made back in like late sixties and seventies called. Uh, the One-Armed Bandit. It's a series of films about our hero who has his arm cut off by the bad guys. And he goes off to heal himself and <clears throat> he gets a cauldron of coals and starts developing with his one good hand the iron fist technique, okay? So that his hand is a fist of iron and he comes back to fight the good guys, uh, the bad guys. The bad guys include monks who can inflate themselves and float like balloons and assassins who jump out of, mm-hmm. okay, so it's all very fantastical. But one of the things that our hero does when he wants to run around and escape of getting hurt, instead of using his feet, he jumps up on his one hand that's good on his fingers and runs with his fingertips. And I cannot tell you how funny and exciting it is to see this guy inverted on this one hand defying gravity. It's only by the the, the strength of the iron fist that he's able to do it. And you see, there's a spirit in that, that we cynical, sophisticated Americans I think are never allowed to fully enjoy. So we need a vehicle with which to let us enjoy it. And that's Kurt Russell's character. He's the cynic who says, oh, come on, man. You know, this is not happening. And constantly it is happening to him. I think that's part of the fun of the homage to the Kung Fu movies. What the the quote in the you said something about you're, you're getting near 40 now and you figured it was time to make something a little screwy or nutty or whatever. But, uh, what does that mean? Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost like uh, someone might take the opposite approach that, well, I'm getting near 40 now, I better start kind of making more meaningful or serious. Uh... Well, it's funny. I, my life kind of goes in reverse. <laughs> when I, in the beginning of my career and some of the films that I made I t- it took them very, very seriously um, they were very slow moody explorations of a kind of a cynical point of view 
a nihilistic point of view, mm -hmm. which I had for a long time. I think it culminated for me, now this is my point of view, my perception, it culminated for me in a movie called The Thing, which is as dark as I can do it, you know. It's a movie, The Thing was a movie about the fact that you cannot trust or know anyone. People who are your friends are no longer your friends. They're no longer human. Mm -hmm. If you extend that to the world, uh, I was sort of feeling that way at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. there, there are not many human beings left. We've all turned into something else. And that, that is a point of view that is a part of my worldview. Well, I think recently, you know, I had a, I had a child, and he's now two years old, and I sort of re-experienced the, the joys of, of being uh, young again. And, f and coming into the world without uh, too much of a knowledge of the nuclear weapons and the, and the, and the human rights violations and, the, and just the horrors of life. Mm -hmm. You know, my son is not aware of that. So to him, the world is this wondrous place. It, simple things are wonderful. Communication is wonderful. Uh, hugs are wonderful. You, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. really down on an elemental level. And I started to... I started to really change my, my, my thinking. And I thought, well, before I get too old here and, and too set, I better, I better kick, kick out the jams and do something that really uh, sort of celebrates his point of view. Mm -hmm. By the time the thing came out, or actually after, I don't know which came first, that and Southern Comfort were also kind of like companion pieces. Well, oh, that's interesting. Saw, uh, interesting. I mean, in, in some ways, really playing on the same themes and doing I like Southern Comfort a lot. Yeah, I like I liked it very. But I see what you mean. I know what you mean, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the thing uh, a lot. Uh, it, it, it seems to not have gone over real well, I mean, with, with in however ways, I mean, co commercially, um, and some, a lot of critics didn't like it. Um, yeah, I was called... I was I was called some outrageous name pornographer of violence. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, it's that like whole kind of it's reaction, like uh, whoa, guys, what? Hey, easy. Now was that easy? Does it? Yeah, was that a difficult uh, a phase to go through? Oh, lordy, lordy, yeah. yeah. I mean, it it, uh, it only confirmed what I believed about you know my worldview then. It, yeah, that was a rough phase because um, people were reacting to the most superficial elements of the movie. And it was very strong, you know, and I got swept up in this wake of E.T. This, this was almost uh -huh. an hysteria. You know, E.T. Mm -hmm. e. came out before we did, about a week or two before we did, before the thing came out. And there was this, like a tornado, like a, it's what's, what Stephen said about E.T. I think it's time for an up cry, he said about the audience. And I think he tapped into to this feeling uh, that, that was in the general, general public. And the thing is exactly the flip side of the coin. He's not a friendly little alien that comes, you know, it's not. He's, yeah. he's the end of your world. He is your worst nightmare. And he's going to show you how nightmarish he is. And I began to be blamed for the world's ills, in a way, I think, you know, in, in terms of movies. I mean, I got, I got pro projected upon, if you know what I'm saying, the projection of, um, I mean, I almost got to a religious fervor, in a sense. It was really bizarre. It's like, how can you call this, our, our God, a dirty name? It was really weird. 
and it was personalized. Mm-hmm. And it was it was stunning because the movie went on to gross enormous amounts of money in video cassette. Oh yeah, enormous, and made money. And its life has been a very strange life of people would sort of secretly come up to me and look around as if they didn't want anybody to hear this, but I really loved the thing. Really? You know, you know, it was like you can't really say because the worst it was, t-shirts ever made. Huh? I think that was the cause. Those t-shirts they made, were, they were the worst. <laughs> worst t-shirts, yeah. You gotta have, you gotta have a good t. You gotta got better t-shirts than that, but. Uh, yeah, well, just the whole darkness of the the, the thing, and and, and perhaps maybe um, you know the Robbo team. Uh, I mean, they were so gruesome, but so expert, just terrific. But they had already, I mean, he'd already done the Howling, I guess, and uh, so there was some. Well, how far can we go with you know these trends? Well, the the idea being in that that the thing can look like anything. So that's yeah. the whole thing. It can do anything it wants. Yeah. It's not like the traditional monster where you have, oh, it turns into the werewolf or. He looks like King Kong or Godzilla, or he's a, no, no. He's he goes beyond that. He's not he's not an insect. He's not anything in life that you can say, "Ooh, that's scary." He's all of it mixed up. And in order to really do it, you have to kind of take the human body because he has no respect for it. Mm. Now, how does that whole uh, experience with uh, the ET thing playing on that? How does that reverberate with Starman? Um, well, it was after it was after Christine and. Christine was a was a, a kind of starting over point for me. Uh-huh. I dropped back from uh, from action and ex- began to concentrate on character. Christine was written primarily, you know, we had this giant book that Stephen King had written, and a giant flabby book that was just hugely overwritten. It was the simple little story, mm-hmm. you know, and it was the words that he used that made it work, not the story itself. That's mm-hmm. almost always true with Stephen King. And it's like Pet Cemetery is this marvelously spooky book that you get into, and then you realize, oh, this is the monkey's paw. Well, this was a short play. This, is, this was a story written by W.W. W. Jacobs. Oh, wait a minute. I've, oh, I've, I've seen this. If you make it as a movie, it's a little old hat, but his language is so eloquent and, and engrossing, you know. So how do I make this thing work? Well, can't concentrate on the car because that's been done. You got to concentrate on on the man, on, on the kid. Mm-hmm. So, I began to focus on on the relationships a lot more, starting with that film. And after it was over, I, I had a relationship at Columbia, a very very good one with Frank Price and Guy McElwain. They were the they were there at that time. And you know that Starman. Uh, didn't get made because of E.T. Yeah, I know that, yeah. So, um, they believed in it a lot. And they had a, one of their staff writers, who's a really excellent writer, Dean Reisner, did a final rewrite of it to try to take it away from E.T., to try to make it, because it was very similar in the beginning. And they gave it to me, and I saw a, a chance to do a road movie. A love story on the road. Basically, the two people thrown together, like it happened one night, but not really. But that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And off they go across America. And it was such a sweet story about America. And it had a great line in it, which, in a way, sums up some of the things 
that the other side of me believes, which is that man's at his very best when things are worst. You know, I kind of like to believe that about us. So off I go. And it was, it was a, a good choice for me to do the film because I was able to, to do kind of a, ro a light romance even though it had a science fiction content, I wasn't as interested in the science fiction mm -hmm. as the as the romance. Yeah, well, it just um, to me, I mean, it, it struck me. I mean, I liked a lot of the stuff in it, but it, it struck me as a less kind of uh, I don't know. It, it was less a John Carpenter film to me in terms of the overall personality than than some of the other ones. Um, I would have to completely agree with you and say that that uh, that. With big trouble now, I, I've come full circle. This is much more like a John Carpenter Absolutely, movie, yeah. and I'm I'm recognizing that now, and I'm realizing. I think the next step is I'm going to start writing my own again, uh -huh. and go right back to where I started, which is uh, a really exciting idea. And uh, because I I've come to realize that I like John Carpenter movies, and they're fun to make, and uh, they won't all be great, you know, and they won't all always make all lots of money and I yeah. won't but who cares yeah Kurt Russell four times you've worked with him now um, probably the only actor I can think of who would have risked playing that scene with the lipstick um, he, he really uh, you get the sense he'll just uh, in fact I saw him on uh, I saw him do Letterman and there was he was being asked about falling onto that pile of stuff with the rats that you would put in it unbeknownst to him and Letterman said, well, you didn't have to do that or something. He said, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I had to do it just because that's what you wanted. You were his director, and there's that kind of trust between the two of you. That's right. Uh, that's what it's all about. It's it's we, that we trust each other so much, and I think that we get together to do extreme things. We get together to do pictures and characters that are not so much like the Silkwood character that he plays, but much more like Jack Burton or Snake Plissken. That there's so many risks involved in, in Kurt's uh, doing some of the parts for me. I mean, there's so many ways to fail. It's almost like, let's go out and see how close we can get to the edge of the limb. You want to play Elvis? You want to take a real risk? You want to play Snake Plissken, who is so far away from you? You want to play the helicopter pilot in, uh, in the Antarctica? You want to play a hero who's really a sidekick? Let's go. And I think it's the trust between us that man manages to make it work. As I said to him once, boy, if you can, if you if you think you can do it, I can do it. How did that? How did he first come to do Elvis? Uh, he was, was that the first you would have gotten together? He there were two choices for Elvis. One fellow who looked exactly like Elvis Presley. Uh -huh. Exactly, spooky. I mean. You looked at the fellow and it went, oh no, you're kidding me. He wasn't, he wasn't an imitator. He was a fellow who looked like Elvis, but he couldn't act. He was not an actor. And then there was Kurt Russell, who looked nothing like Elvis, but who was an actor. And Elvis, well, it needed spirit. Kurt isn't. Chameleon, he's a mimic, and he stepped into those shoes and made it real. So there's no choice. Yeah.
And then just uh, having established that, you were able to go on and use some of these other... Uh, it, it, yeah, it seems that, you know, it just kind of cuts away the whole vanity aspect of it. Just let's let's have fun, let's act, uh, you know. Like I said, I mean, I, a lot of actors would just not... Oh, I'm sure a lot of actors would not play this part. Uh, no, they wouldn't They wouldn't be able to. They, they would perceive some of it as being weak. Or, I'm looking funny, I mustn't look funny. What you say about vanity? It would be that whole... But, but again, it would be that kind of... I think a lot of actors would play it as if... They'd be winking at the audience, saying, "Ah, look, I'm not really buying any of this. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're made, I'm doing this because I'm having a good time, blah blah blah. But hey, I'm really an actor, you know, serious actor or whatever. <laughs> but uh, well, it's 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 really. You notice that my my theory of um, of what happens to some people is they suddenly. And you've seen it in, in, in very, the raw talent that comes in and has sort of magical on the screen. And then all of a sudden, over the years, they become more Hollywood. They get more processed looking, mm -hmm. more makeup. And they stop being either funny or, or brilliant. They suddenly squeeze themselves down to this line of acceptability where they want to be stars. Mm -hmm. I notice it in one actor, uh, especially, who's always been one of my favorite actors uh, in the old days, and it's Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson used to play some really hot parts in The Magnificent Seven, in The Great Escape. I mean, he was great in that. He played the guy who couldn't go in the couldn't go underground. Yeah. He played somebody with complexity, you know. Um, he played some. He played uh, uh, Riders on the Storm. He played some really interesting parts and extremely well. And then got to the point where I think he wanted to, to, to disappear and not act anymore. And he's a wonderful actor. But it becomes, what do I look yeah, at? Yeah. Is Jeff Bridges would play the character in Cutter's Way, who is a scoundrel. And he can play that and doesn't mind being weak or foolish. That's why... I admire Jeff. Yeah, I, I think he's terrific. I think he's absolutely yeah. fearless. He's like, he and Kurt are similar in that they're fearless. And, I mean, obviously that, or not obviously, I don't know, that seems to guarantee a certain, I mean, if you want to be a star, a box office star, that is not the way to go about it. Exactly. People want to see either the same thing every time or they don't want to see you subjugating yourself to the material, you know. Very, and... and so my, my point about Bronson is I've, I've always loved him as an actor and I still go see his films yeah. because I enjoy him so much. As like Clint Eastwood, I think, is an enormously underrated actor. Absolutely. I constantly go see his films and I'd love to work with both of those guys someday. Yeah. But I see what can happen to you. I can see it as a director. You know, the pressure is to not, is to, just, is to squeeze down the extremes and kind of go in the middle and deliver something that's safe. Play it safe. Well, Bronson just never seemed to really want to pay much attention to what film he was doing. Uh, it seemed he was—he had this career rolling, and he just uh, where Eastwood has obviously varied the character and whatever. But another example, just watching Burt Reynolds on the Tonight Show the other night uh, with this elaborate new toupee. I mean, it just um, here's a guy who I, I think could have been like the best, like light romantic comedy actor we have, like the Cary Cran of the 70s or 80s, and uh, 
you know, I don't know if a guy you would think in his position would have a certain amount of control to, uh, but then one movie like Starting Over that didn't do too well, you know, commercially, and he's uh, back on his horse or whatever. But uh, I don't know that it was, because I know I know Bert somewhat. I don't know that it was Starting Over. That, no, I know that one in it, particular. Yeah. It's really tough. Uh, it's a really tough world because. You know, they wanted him to do Smokey again and again and again. Yeah. And uh, he did. And the other series, too. The, uh, Cannonball Run. Yeah, those. Boom. You, you're just trapped after that. I mean, I understand. I, you know, understand it's understandable. And, you know, yeah. it's understandable. Uh, it's real spooky. He'll, he, he's very talented, though. I think he'll, he'll be back. You've been listening to a conversation with the one and only John Carpenter. Thanks to Rick Riggs and Handwritten Studios for the production work and Jeff Bradfield for the music. On our next podcast, I'll chat with William Freakin, Chicago-born director of The Exorcist and The French Connection. Join me. I'm Lloyd Sachs.